Scripture for the message this evening and will be from Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 16. Uh, you guys can follow in your worship guides on the very back page. Please listen closely for this is the word of the Lord. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You would pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that through your spirit, you would do your work in our minds and in our hearts. God, that you bring real change to us. Change that would result in your glory. So God, I pray that you bring clarity to these words, but more than clarity, may you bring power to them. May my words fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. When I was a little child, my mom used to take me on errands with her. And I, typically, I didn't mind if we went to the grocery store or to Walmart or something like that, but there, there were a couple places I absolutely hated to go. Uh, one was Marshall's. I mean, who, who wants, as a small boy, who wants to go to Marshall's? 
But the worst of all of them was Hancock Fabrics. Uh, no boy wants to go to Hancock Fabrics and just look at fabrics, never-ending fabrics. And, and so the only way that I would try to salvage some of the time is I'd ask if they have those little cardboard tubes, and I would get those, and I'd pretend it was a lightsaber, and I would go around just hitting people uh, until they asked me to stop. But, but I, I hated Hancock Fabrics. Now, what we are entering in Scripture in Exodus 25 through 40 is the Hancock Fabrics of Scripture, all right? It is description of the tabernacle with all of the fabrics, all of the curtains, all of the candles, all of the table decorations. It's excruciatingly painful to read. I am a pastor, and it is excruciatingly painful for me to read through these things. I read this from one commentary. He said, it was probably just as painful to read back then as it is now. Yet, yet, one-third of the book of Exodus is devoted to all of these details. One-third of the book. You can actually say that the building of their tabernacle is the climax of the book. It's what the book has been leading towards. If you remember back in September, October, when we began looking at the, the story of the Exodus, you remember how Moses, he was sent to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. But he didn't stop there. Let my people go that they may worship me. Worshiping God was always the end goal. And it was through the tabernacle that God's presence would come to earth and they would be able to enter into his presence and worship. So the tabernacle is the goal. Now, if we want to understand the purpose of the tar tabernacle, why it deserved so much attention in the book of Exodus, and why it's still vitally important to us, we need to ask and answer three questions. These are the questions. One, why does God want a tabernacle? And then, why does he want this type of tabernacle? And finally, what's the ultimate purpose of this tabernacle? Or to whom or what does it point? So let's look at the first question. Why a tabernacle? Well, the primary purpose of the tabernacle is to provide a place for God's presence to come and dwell in the midst of a community. Uh, it, it's like, think of it as a portable Mount Sinai in, in which God's presence can come in an intensity that's not found in the rest of creation. It's a portable Mount Sinai. But... But God's presence, it comes not in the way probably any of us in here would choose. Uh, because God chooses to live in a tent. Now, tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. But God is coming to live in a tent. And, and tents are great for camping. They're a good temporary dwelling, but they're not a home. When one settles down, they don't live in a tent. One lives in a tent when you're going to war or perhaps when you were traveling, but not when one is home. So why is it that God decides here to dwell in a tent instead of, instead of a temple, especially when the promised land is about 100 miles away? Couldn't he just wait and say, we'll just get to the promised land and then we'll just go ahead and we are going to build a temple? 
So it seems a little odd that God, the God of this universe, would tell these people to make him a tent instead of a grand temple, but it was always God's design. And he does it for a number of reasons. For one, God is a God on the move. And we are to be moving with him. We saw this in Exodus 40, but you see it a little more explicitly in places like Numbers 9, in which God is constantly telling to move after one day, maybe move after two days, maybe pick up the tent and move another place after a month. And we read this in Numbers 9. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when the cloud lifted up, they set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. You, you can't do this with a temple. You can't keep moving. But here, they're learning obedience. You move when I say move. You stay when I say stay. And you know what? Home is going to be defined by my presence, not by any condition that you are looking for. And so he's, he's teaching them this, that no matter where you are, no matter if it's here for a couple days or whether it's here for a month, this is your home because I am with you. Move when I say move. Stay when I say stay. Now, God reinforces this idea that he is a God on the move when it comes to him giving instructions to how to build the ark. In Exodus 25, it goes through all the detailed instructions of the ark. And one of the things it mentions is that the ark has long, long poles that are put in it in order to carry it. These long poles. And God is very explicit in his directions. He says, these poles are to never be taken out. The poles remain, and it's not because the poles were beautiful. It's not because you'd like to look at the poles, but it's because they represented something, that God was always on the move. You can't pin him down. And God's people are to move with him wherever he goes. Stay when I say stay. Move when I say move. And where I am is your home. Now, as God's people, we are to still live the same way. When God says move, we move. When he says stay, we stay, and he is our home. Every morning when you wake up, you need to be asking, God, fill me with your presence and guide me to where you want to go. Wherever it is, guide me. And may you give me such rest in the midst of anxiety that I'm always at home. You know, I find it very interesting that uh, 500 years later or so when the Israelites decided they wanted to build God a temple, which wasn't God's idea. He was fine with the tabernacle, but they wanted to build a temple. And he said, well, if you're going to build me a temple, I'm at least going to give you some directions of how to do it. And so he gives detailed instructions of how the temple's to be built. And so when you get to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is to rest, the poles don't fit in it. The, the poles extend out of the Holy of Holies. Now, th there's architects I know in this room, if they had made such a blunder, you'd probably be fired for such a big project as this. But this was God's design. 
He says, okay, if you're, if you're going to build a home, fine, but I'm going to give you the instructions, and the instructions are this. The ark isn't even going to fit in there. And when people come to the temple, they will always be reminded that you can't pin me down, that I am a God on the move. And so it even reinforces this 500 years later. Now, now before moving on, there's, there's some more uh, minutiae of the temple that we need to, uh, to look through. Uh, something else stands out when you read through this. And, and it's the way that Moses, is, Moses writes all of these details. When Moses writes, he places our focus uh, on the process, but not the finished product of the temple. He, he focuses on the construction, but not on the completion of this tabernacle. Sorry. And so as you're reading through this, Moses never once describes a completed tabernacle, only it being constantly built or broken down and then built again. It's always through the lens of one weaving or carving or sewing or building that he writes about this tabernacle, and he does it very intentionally. Uh, even after the tabernacle is finished, and we're going to see that it's still always in process because they're always tearing it down and they're always putting it back together. Over and over and over. Can you imagine what a pain that would be to do that over and over? I mean, some of us guys want to go camping, you know, this weekend, and we're going to set up tents. You know, our tents are probably going to be eight feet by eight feet, small things with your little graphite rods held together by bungees. And it's going to take some of us an hour to put together a tent. That's just the reality of it. But this is so much more complex. And sometimes they would, they would set it up, they'd be there a day, and then God would say, move down one mile. Break it down, move a mile, set it back up. Okay, that's great. Next day, I want you to move another mile. Tear it down, move, build it back up. Over and over again. It would drive so many of us crazy. But this is what God has them doing over and over now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to this because I often feel like I'm just tearing things down and building them back up, tearing them down, building back, them back up, doing the same thing over and over and over again. I feel like, I feel like my life is in a state of constant, constant transition, no real permanence, but I'm, I'm always in this transition phase. I'm always packing. I'm always moving. I'm always trying to take the next step. I'm always trying to remove the latest obstacle. And it gets so tiring. You know, Lauren and I, we were thinking about this, and gosh, I mean, Lauren and I, we recover from a surgery only to have another body part breakdown. It happens over and over. I mean, currently I've got two broken knuckles, you know, a little strained muscle here. And this morning I was leading worship and my shoulder got stuck. I was like, oh gosh, I got to get this thing down. And, and I keep telling myself that, okay, this is just a temporary setback that's been happening for over 10 years. But, but it's, I, I, somehow I tell myself, this isn't normal. But it is. I'm always in transition. I'm always breaking down, building back up. Lauren and I, we, we invest so much time and energy in getting to know people, maybe visitors who come to the church, and we finally get to know them, and maybe they move away. It's like, all right, well, let's spend so much time and energy getting to know somebody else, and we start the process over again. 
Even simple things like decorating the home. Tell me, is, is decorating a home ever finished? Is there ever a point where you're like, I'm done. Like, I could walk away. The home is perfect. Never. There's, there's always cracking. There's always dripping faucets. There's always something that needs to be painted. There's always furniture that breaks. You're never, you're never finished. It's always a process. Parents, I, I know you can understand this. Feeling like your whole life is a life lived in transition. You understand this the moment you have a child. And I love the, the really cocky parents, you know, the ones who maybe they have a brand new baby and after a couple weeks are like, you know, my child is sleeping through the night. Yep, my child is, and you're like, hey, just, just wait. First sickness, you know, and then all of a sudden, all right, your child's not sleeping through the night. So you get your child well. My child's sleeping through the night. Teething, you know, it's God's way of just making, you know, just smiling, throwing these little things at you. So then your child's not sleeping through the night. And then it's, you know, a little uh, growth spurt, need to eat every other hour, you know. Then it's double ear infections, you know. If there's always something, always something. You get better, you think you got it, and then it breaks down. Laundry is never done, ever. You wash, you dry, you fold, you put up, you go back to the laundry hamper, and there it is, more dirty clothes for you to wash, dry, fold, put up. It never, ever ends. This is just life. This is what we're seeing here is life. We, we long for this fixed place of rest. We want it. We want rest, not transition, not tearing down and having to build it back up over and over again. But you know what? God, instead, he gives us process and he gives us construction. We want permanence and he gives us times of transition. We want stability, but then God says, hey, you don't know which way the wind will blow, but it does blow. And what we are ultimately longing for when we're thinking of rest, we're ultimately longing for heaven on earth. That's what we want. We want God's kingdom to come. But for now, we're giving God's spirit as a promise that that day will come. But until then... We're to be at home in the midst of this building and this tearing down. Now, I find it so interesting that many of my heroes of the faith, they always wanted rest. They always wanted, you know, that little ivory tower they could go to and write or that, uh, that study in which nobody bothers them and they really get to put out these great Christian works. People like John Calvin, he, he wanted that. But when he got it, he really... He really didn't write that much great. But it was during his times of transition when he had kids running underneath or crawling underneath his table as he was trying to study, biting his leg, when he had armies outside waiting to kill him. That's when he writes his best stuff. Martin Luther, same thing. He, he, he wanted just a place where he could go and study, but it's when he's expelled from the papacy. It's when people are constantly trying to hunt him down and kill him that he writes these tremendous, lasting works. In these times of transition is when God used them. Don't try to get past this time of transition for when your whole life is that. Be open to what God wants you to do now during this time. Remember, with God's spirit, your home. That's your rest, your home. All right, let's look at why this type of tabernacle 
Why this type? Uh, When the instructions for building the tabernacle are given, God begins with the Ark of the Covenant, which is, you know, the seat or the throne of God where his glory comes and dwells. He starts with the Ark, and then he moves outward. He starts from the inside out in how he is going to build the tabernacle. So he begins with the inside, and then he keeps adding layer after layer after layer. And really, these these layers are barriers. And so you have, you know, your uh, holy of holies, and then you have a curtain around it, and then you have some furniture, and then you have the, the most holy place uh, curtain that goes around that, and then you have some more furniture, and then you have this other thick curtain that goes around that in the outer courtyard. And it's all of these boundaries or these layers that we see being spread out from the Ark of the Covenant. So why does God design his tabernacle like that? Well, we've, we've seen as we've gone through Exodus that God's presence for us is a problem. It's a problem. We, we long for God's presence, but it's a huge problem for us because if we're in his presence, we die and we need protection. We need barriers. And it didn't used to always be that way. Back in the Garden of Eden, there were no barriers. Adam is simply described as walking with God in the cool of the evening. I love that imagery. It's what Lauren and I do after work. We get together and we just kind of go on a walk so we can catch up with each other's day and we can just simply enjoy one another's company. That's what Genesis is saying. Adam and God enjoyed one another's company in the cool of the evening. So, so it wasn't always that way. But something happened, our sin, and our sin became a huge problem for us. And, and the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they, they began putting up barriers. Now, the first barrier was, you know, fig leaves. They start putting fig leaves all over them as a barrier. And then they're like, that's not enough. So they go and hide behind some things as another barrier. And then finally, God throws them out of the Garden of Eden And he puts a a cherub, an angel, with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to act as another barrier, saying you can't get back in. You might want to be in my presence again. You might want to be in Eden again, but you can't get back. And we desperately want to get back in there. Now, now C.S. Lewis, he... He, of course, explains this better than me or anybody can. He explains it in, a, in an article called The Inner Ring, which I've alluded to over the years. And in this article, C.S. Lewis, he talks about how all of life, all of life is shaped by the desire to be on the, the inside. We, we want to be in the inner circle. We want to be in the inner ring. We want to be included. We want to be part of this exclusive group in which we get to use the, this delicious word, we. We. And we also get to use that word, them. We, we want to be a part of that. You know, you felt it even in high school back then when, when, you, when you so longed to be part of a group. And maybe there was that one moment when, you know, somebody popular said, and we, and you're like, oh. I was included in this. And he got to look down at the them. God revealed, just, he brought to mind this morning a, a way that 
uh, this shaped my life. Uh, years ago, um, I had to, uh, I was doing something with uh, Dr. John Piper, and so I had his cell phone number, and I had it, you know, programmed in my phone, and, uh, and then Piper changed his number, and uh, I just kind of left it in my phone. I just wanted to leave it in there, just, just in case anybody was looking at my phone and wanted to scroll through and be like, hey, well, you know, Joel has got John Piper's number in his phone. I wanted this we. I wanted the illusion of the we. We all want that. We're fighting to get in this inner ring. Now, Lewis doesn't talk about this, but, but really what is happening here is what we're ultimately longing for is to be in the inner ring, to be back in the garden. We want to be back in the circle with God himself. We want to go back to Eden. And yet we feel so excluded and that drives us to try to always get in whatever inner ring we can. Now with the tabernacle, getting in this inner ring with God, getting back to Eden is once again possible. Eden has come back to earth and is accessible to us through the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle, and we don't have time to go through all of this, but it's actually designed to be the Garden of Eden. And when you look at all the designs in the tabernacle, one of the things that really stands out is almost everything is some kind of fruit or flower or tree. Whether it's, whether it's woven into tapestries or whether it's carved into wood or into gold, but it's to represent this lush garden. So you have the the lampstand that's, that's right outside of God's presence there, and it looks like a tree and, it, and these almond uh, blossoms representing the tree of life with God's presence. And we also have the cherubim again, those barriers around God's presence and the tree of life. There is this veil, this curtain that goes around it. And woven or embroidered in this curtain are cherubim, angels guarding the presence of God. So once again, we have this barrier. And and so even though we see Eden is returning, that God through the tabernacle is providing a way in, we see that there are still barriers there. And so God sets up a system where only one person can enter, the high priest, only once a year. And what that high priest has to do to get ready to enter is just crazy. I mean, he is making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He's covering everything with blood. He is constantly having to change his clothes, take a bath, make another sacrifice, change his clothes, take a bath, make another sacrifice. This happens over and over. And then maybe, just maybe, he can enter back into Eden, into the Holy of Holies, and not die. So Eden has come again, but there are still all of these barriers. To really get back in the presence of God, you have to go through the cherubim. You have to fall under the sword. And this leads us to the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, it is a tool here, but more than that, it is a symbol. It's a symbol. It's a sign of something much greater. And we usually, we read about this every Christmas, but, 
In John 1.14, he's, he's describing Jesus called the Word, and he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, literally, this says this, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Jesus is the fulfillment of this tabernacle. It's through Jesus that God enters our messy world and comes to be in our midst. And when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God. And everything, everything in this tabernacle pointed to Jesus. The lampstand pointed to Jesus, who was the light of the world. The showbread on the table pointed to Jesus, who says he was the bread of life. The, the altars and the sacrifices, they pointed to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Over and over, as you go through all the description of the tabernacle, it points you to Jesus. And like the tabernacle itself, Jesus is, is a way to God. But he's more than that. He is also the very presence of God. He is both the way to God and he is the glory of God in that holy of holies. And when Jesus was on the cross, right before he died, he shouted the words, it is finished. It is finished. And Jesus, he was, he was referring to a number of things here. But one of the things he most certainly was referring to was the function of the tabernacle and the temple. That they are finished. Matthew 27 says that after Jesus cried this out, it says the curtain temple was ripped in two. This is that curtain temple with the cherubim that separates the holy of holies from, from us. It says it was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the, and the great image is this. Jesus yells, it is finished, and God his Father says, yes, it is. There is no longer a need for this temple. We now have access because the sin problem has been dealt with in Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And the author of Hebrews, he sees that curtain being torn. It was torn when Jesus' flesh was torn. Because Jesus went under the sword, we now get to go back in. You don't have to spend your whole life trying to get in the next inner circle only to find that there's another circle. And you get in that to find there's another inner circle. You have been let back in the circle. Are you taking advantage of that? We get back in that ultimate inner ring, the holy of holies. We get to go back to Eden. And even more than that, let me, let, let me, I'll just end on this. Even more than that, the implications of this as a believer are astonishing. Because Paul's going to go on later in 1 Corinthians, he's going to say, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the presence of God now dwells in you. You're a tabernacle, if you will, for the presence of God. Let that just sit in. 
That means think of the functions of the tabernacle. That means wherever you go, you get to be like a little portable Eden to people. That wherever you go, that truly, if God's presence is in you, when you walk alongside an an unbeliever, they are kind of like Adam getting to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Because your presence, God's presence in you, gets to minister to them. The, the, The implications of this are profound. When people look at you when there's turmoil all around, transition all around, and they see you're at rest, that you're at home, it's an invitation for them to come back to Eden. So I pray that we would trust Jesus to make that a reality in our life. He has torn open the curtain through his flesh. Take full advantage. Pray with me. Our Father, I pray for each person here that when you say stay, they would stay. When you say go, they would go. For those who are believers and who are uh, little temples for your spirit, may they take advantage. May they press into you. And may they, they function the way that a tabernacle is supposed to function. Lord, make that a reality in our life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for opening the way to God. We pray this in your name. Amen.